I often use these first two rules of, of mechanics. And, and the first rule of mechanics is, is never trust what you feel, especially in something as, as organic as running. You think you run a certain way, and then you look at the video, and you have some distinctions, and you know, you're either appalled or, or quite pleased with what you see. And then the second rule of, of, of mechanics is, is if you want to uh, create change, you need to exaggerate the movement. That Triathlon Show 225. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview coach Bobby McGee. Bobby is a world-renowned running coach and a triathlon running coach who has more than three decades of experience in coaching elite and recreational runners and triathletes. Bobby is particularly knowledgeable in uh, running form and uh, what it takes to improve your running form and how to improve your running form based on the individual athlete in front of him. So we'll get into that a lot in this interview, as uh, you can tell from the title. Uh, But uh, in addition to running, Bobby is actually also a wealth of knowledge in sports psychology. So that's an aspect that uh, I find very fascinating and and I was really happy to, to have a bit of a discussion towards the end on that topic as well so just as last week's episode this is another uh, live recorded episode so you might hear some of that in the recording but it should be a decent quality we had a, a nice uh, quiet uh, quiet room to record in so that was all good uh, bobby was uh, helping out and working with some athletes that he works with on an individual basis on the camp held by John O'Hall of Triathlon Canada for some of the Canadian athletes and his international athletes as well. So that's just to uh, to inform you about the context of this interview. So uh, yeah, we'll get right into the episode after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that can be tailored to your individual sweat rate and sweat sodium content so that you can replace an adequate amount of sodium. Because if you do not do that, especially in longer and harder races, you run the risk of uh, reduced performance and cramping. So Precision Hydration has developed based on uh, actual measured sweat and sweat sodium uh, content data. They have developed uh, a simple quiz that will give you a great estimate for what your actual sweat sodium content is without uh, going to the trouble of actually finding a test a sweat test provider that can can measure your sweat sodium content so go to precisionhydration.com and click their free hydration plan tab and that will take you to the test where you'll just uh, fill in your answers to 10 questions and you will get your ballpark estimate for sweat rate and sweat sodium content and how to use that knowledge in your race strategy for hydration you can also get 15% off your order on precisionhydration.com with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And big thanks to Roka. Roka have just launched a new wetsuit, the Maverick MX, which is a max buoyancy wetsuit designed to increase buoyancy while minimizing drag. 
And uh, to give you a bit of a background on this sign, I've talked with uh, Roka's team about this and uh, we discussed the wetsuit uh, in depth and I was uh, really interested in hearing uh, how why they wanted to, to create a new wetsuit. Uh, and the reason is that in the past, the main reason to not simply design for maximum buoyancy was that if you do that, you were to lose shoulder flexibility. The arms of construction technology that uh, Roka has invented provides uh, a pattern-based, although not materials-based, solution to shoulder flexibility. So what uh, Roka set out to, uh, to ask themselves is how much buoyancy can they add now that they have a pattern-based solution to keep the shoulders free and flexible. And uh, the result is the Maverick MX, which is their most buoyant suit ever uh, with very little impact to shoulder flexibility despite that added buoyancy. And the other good news is that it's very affordable at uh, $450 or euros or 400 British pounds. You can find it on roca.com forward slash TTS and that is also where you'll get a 20% discount code for your order. Without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Bobby McGee. So I'm here for a live interview with uh, Bobby McGee. Uh, Bobby, it's uh, a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself and uh, who you are and what you do? Sounds good, Michael. Thanks. Uh, my primary position is with... Uh, uh, USA Triathlon at the moment, I'm a development coordinator for them. So I work with uh, uh, junior talent identification and development. Uh, and then, you know, my background is I'm, I'm a South African by birth. Uh, and I basically went to university to study to be a coach. And so my, my stock in trade when I started off with the sports coaching was middle distance and uh, uh, long distance track running and later graduated to more road running and marathon running. And then when I moved to the U.S., I uh, started working more, uh, you know, sort of 96, around about that time, um, started working more with uh, elite triathletes and, and more in a supportive role. Uh, and then I also have my own business, Bobby McGee Endurance Sports, and I coach individual runners in that. Great. And uh, can you give some context for why you're here in uh, Portugal, in the Algarve? What's uh, your role here on this particular training camp? Yeah, I work with, uh, you know, the previous uh, Olympiad, I was working up to Rio. I was the uh, uh, the high performance advisor for USA Triathlon, and I worked with a number of the athletes, uh, both on an individual basis and then as team support leading up in, into Rio. And uh, th those relationships stayed in place. And at the moment, uh, two of the athletes that I worked with in the previous quad and that I, in fact, worked with before, long before that uh, are Kevin McDowell and, and uh, Kirsten Casper, and I'm here to support them as they, you know, work on their final lead up to, you know, uh, trying to make the team to Rio, I mean, to Tokyo. All right. So uh, running is uh, your, really your primary uh, focus area, uh, I guess it's fair to say, and you also have uh, put quite a bit of emphasis on running form in particular, how to get the most out of, of a runner by by improving their running form uh, changing it if needed fine-tuning it if needed so let's start to talk about that and uh, how would you just describe good running form what what does it consist of you know it's a it's a really good question i think a better place to start is probably to look at 
the movement of running versus the the other activities like like swimming and biking or tennis or golf or whatever you want to call it. And I like to view running as as primal or a first language. In other words, the way that you learned to run was uh, very organic, very automatic, and it's almost more primal than than walking because it's your the mode by which you get away from trouble and you know go towards catching your food. So um, not a lot of people specialize in how to address mechanics, and so it became a fascination of mine many many years ago. Uh, you know, over and above the, the physiotherapy approaches is that the way that individual run leads to them being injured. It took so many years for research to start showing that, uh, whatever has happened to that athlete from those, uh, five, you know, formative years in running has led to them not running as effectively as they could. So in, in many ways, I don't teach people how to run. I help people get back to the best running that they are capable of. So you're saying that basically what good running form looks like is very different from individual to individual, perhaps depending on their uh, functional mobility and their, uh, their, their body type and that sort of thing. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, it's, it's good that you talk about, you know, range of motion and functional mobility and stuff like that. So anthropometry plays a big role in that, you know, uh, and, and sadly in all endurance sports, you know, as Tim Noakes was fond of saying is if you, if you want to be a good endurance athlete, you have to go back and re-choose your parents. And, uh, so running mechanics is like that. You have to work with what you've got. If you have somebody with a long torso and reasonably short legs, um, it, that your approach to them, you know, would be more cadence based, more power based. Uh, whereas if you're working with somebody with a very natural out the back, long stride length, you want to just make sure that those things that are getting in the way from them being able to perform that way, uh, that you, you teach them that. So, you know, it, it definitely is not only what their, their build type is, but also how did they grow up? You know, did they grow up with, uh, with intermittent high speed running or did they grow up with continuous running or did they grow up in an endurance sport where there was no loading on the lower limb, you know? So you have to address things like bone density and, and actually the, the eccentric elastic loading nature of running, say versus cycling or versus swimming. So can we try to illustrate with a couple of examples of, uh, like, or case studies with athletes you worked with? So perhaps if we, if you, Pick one elite athlete. You don't have to name it if you, uh, the athlete, if you don't want to, and perhaps an age group athlete, just to give the listeners an idea of some typical, uh, whether it's fine tuning or more bigger changes that you've made to, to these case study athletes running form and how that works, how you optimize based on whatever their background and body type, et cetera, is. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, you, you can look at, uh, you know, to give you a specific example might be fair or unfair to, to certain athletes. So, you know, you look at an athlete that say, uh, predominantly seems to be way up on the midfoot, even on the forefoot when they're running and determining whether that athlete, you know, by virtue of their, their calf size or by virtue of, uh, their, their injury history, if that's a natural gait for them or do they just have some, tissue imbalance where you know the gastrocs and the soleuses are short and so they're ending up on their toes just because they can't put their heels down 
and you can address it that way. But I'm generally looking at, you know, things like symmetry, elastic return, you know, foot strike. Mostly I'm looking at braking and posture. So those are the two that I would look at. So I would look at a runner straight away and say, okay, they don't have a mechanical advantage because they're running with a very low arched back or a very high chest and their eye line is, is above the horizon. And so they're not able to, to maintain momentum as effectively as a Richard Murray type runner that is very far forward and has a very large back kick and has the range of motion and the capacity and the development over time to be able to sustain that. So, you know, you, you're not looking at an ideal running form. You're looking at an individual and you're asking yourself, what is the best running form that that individual can sustain? So this might be an impossible question to answer, but if you're working with age groupers, is there such a thing as a typical age group running form that you see with uh, people that have been in endurance sports for at least a few years? So they're like experienced endurance athletes, but not necessarily, you know, Kona age group winners or anything like that, but reasonable age group athletes. Is there any norm there or is it all across the board really when it comes to running form? And what, what would be some very typical changes that you might make to an age group athlete's running form? Yeah, I, I do think that there are some norms. And it, and again, I think uh, muscle fiber type and, and sport background often plays a big role in that. Even if somebody has been in a sport for a couple of years and has figured out a way to run, that way that they figured out to run, if it's not a continuum from when they were very young, is likely to be quite contrived based on visual images of what they think they look like when they're running and what they think they should look like when they're running. And so it's actually so much easier. You get far greater gains working with A, age groupers, and then B, triathletes who have this intervention of the other sports that keeps impacting their running from a peripheral standpoint. So a typical thing would be helping them understand what an overstride is you know, so that, it, you know, it's it's too much stride in the front and helping them realize, okay, their limitation might be extension in, in the rectus femoris or uh, inability to, to achieve extension without anteriorly t- tilting their pelvis. And so you can go through, you know, the, the physiotherapy, massage, chiropractic approach where you help them create an, a level of an awareness to be able to do that stride. Another one that I use a lot lately is... Um, age group runners that rely on gravity to bring them down to the surface and think that running is all about the power of getting off the surface where it's completely opposite. So, you know, I call them floaters or gliders. They get off the ground and then they come down crashing into the ground and they their vertical oscillation whilst they're on the ground is quite dramatic and they become quite quad dominant runners in that way. And similarly, uh, you you get uh, runners who who are unable to extend out the back, and so they end up reaching in the front. They have this rearward leaning shank and are putting on the brakes. And those are quite quick fixes because they uh, sometimes are completely. They live in a place that oh, I never even thought about that. You know, so you saw an athlete earlier today who had never even considered um, how he was running and what his capabilities were. You just do a small little intervention, that little realization, first determine whether it's a an imbalance thing or a tissue thing or a tightness thing or a range of motion thing, but you just 
change the queuing, you just change the internal dialogue and immediately the cadence comes up, the run becomes more mechanically efficient. So that leads into something, a bit of a detour, I guess, but you mentioned when you were talking with this athlete the two laws of mechanics, and I thought they were really nice. So can you just repeat them here for the listener's benefit? Sure. So, you know, when an endurance coach works works with athletes, uh, the mindset is often one of extreme patience. You know, the, the changes that re- that the central physiology requires to adapt really requires consistency and duration of effort and careful management of that. Whereas sometimes, if you're lucky, you can kind of have a chiropractic approach to to running. But the thing is to imprint this in the athlete and, and give them the tools to be able to do that. So I, I often use these first two rules of of mechanics. And and the first rule of mechanics is is never trust what you feel, especially in something as as organic as running. You think you run a certain way, and then you look at the video and you have some distinctions, and you know you're either appalled or, or quite pleased with what you see. And then the second rule of, of, of mechanics is, is if you want to uh, create change, you need to exaggerate the movement. You need to really overdo it because sometimes an athlete can make a change that is so subtle that it's not kinematically visible. So in other words, you can't see it on film, uh, but they already feel discomfort. But that process is too difficult for them to be able to go to the central point they actually have to exaggerate the motion and you see that in all sports you know swimming is a is an ideal example of that because that's also a high repetition motion athlete makes a slight change that's not visible to the eye feels dramatically different and then you give him a different cue no i don't want you to put your arm you know your hand in the water a centimeter to the to the right of your center line i want you to feel like it's eight or nine or ten centimeters to the right and then you might get a centimeter if you're lucky what are some of the cues that you might use for again just pick a few normal examples maybe perhaps some of the ones that you mentioned earlier around uh just uh not being able to extend back and actually like reaching forward with the leg or about the posture uh just normal cues that you would use to help runners overcome some of the common uh, mistakes in running form that they might be doing Yeah, I I think a conversation like that needs to also go to a place of how does the athlete self-instruct. So in sports psychology, we learn that in in rote movements, in in endurance movements, you don't want to think about how you're executing the movement early on. You want to make sure that you are that your thought content, that your internal dialogue is more mood orientated. You know, smooth, strong capable, ready, fit, uh, well-paced, any of those things which are more mood-type words. So it points to the fact that when you're working with running mechanics, you're not trying to have the athlete do something that is completely alien to them. You're not teaching them a new movement. You're refining the movement pattern that – contralateral extensor cross reflex that we all have when when we run so you know an example of an athlete that uh you know has say limited extension capabilities would 
probably 60% of the time be a tight rectus femoris. Sometimes it's, you know, the SI that's stuck. Sometimes it's the psoas that's stuck. So that would be, you know, a therapy approach with dynamic mobility work designed to extend. So things like leg swings and, and active quad release work. Uh, if somebody has is is floating into the ground, coming in and extending their heel, not gathering the ground, then you would use uh, static drills like pop drills where they would stand up against a wall uh, with the one foot up and they would drive that leg down and try and bounce it off the ground. Or they would do something like an A-skip where the whole emphasis of the A-skip is driving the leg down to load the plantar fascia and the Achilles tendon and bounce forward. And the A-skip's a great place to teach posture as well because if you do the A-skip with poor posture, you can either stay in one spot or go backwards. You know, So they interrelated in that way. Okay, so that it sounds we're getting into a, an important question here, which is how do you actually change running form? And it sounds like, yeah, well, in some cases, therapy plays a part if you have some limitations in uh, in your uh, muscles and your soft tissue. But uh, in many cases, it's actually about doing, for example, drill work and then that translating into the running rather than actually rather than just thinking about a certain cue. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, at the moment in this camp, what's so good is, is I have a, uh, a therapist working with me while I'm assessing the athlete and, and, and physical therapists typically are looking at isolated joint motions and they're not seeing the athlete perform dynamically. So I find that while dynamic mobility drills are absolutely essential before quality work, I'm finding that they be, uh, become very useful after long runs. They become very useful after long rides. They become very useful partially after swimming to restore, to restore the running motion. So I've drifted a little bit of, of uh, answering your question. Uh, but they show me what needs to be worked on. Is it a soft tissue thing? Is it a balance thing? Often it's a power thing that, that displays itself in poor balance. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's like a really rote, direct fix. The athlete has habituated a movement, maybe because of an injury or maybe because of something silly like carrying a phone or carrying a water bottle or something like that, has now habituated this new mo- movement. Uh, there's an asymmetry and now there's a period, a, a reasonably uncomfortable, painful period to restore that symmetry back. You often see it with track athletes that, you know, you, if you put them, if you have them do a stride with a blindfold on, they'll always go to the left. You know, they're so used to going to the left. And when they start to understand and get this distinction, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually correcting to straighten up all the time. Uh, not knowing it and it's just not mechanically efficient you know i'm using a little and you know working the other way running the opposite way around the track that kind of thing just addressing uh you know the stability and and the the typical leg length discrepancies that arise from running around a left hand turn all the time so getting into drills a little bit uh, you mentioned wall drills uh, a skips and uh well di- generally dynamic warm-ups and dynamic uh, work even uh, after workouts what are some other exercises or drills that you find are useful in uh, certain scenarios for for athletes yeah so because of the uh ipsy lateral nature of swimming I sometimes find that that uh, athletes get stuck with their upper body. And it's a thing that we work with all the time, and it's this concept of being disconnected. So they want their arms to be on rails. 
they don't realize that when the shoulders oscillate that their stance width with their elbows the points of their elbows gets narrower and so for them to to understand the three-dimensional mo- motions that they need to do i invent drills so one of my favorite drills to establish connection both in terms of the torso with the pelvis is something i call a velcro drill whereas i have the athlete imagine they have velcro on the middle of their forearm and velcro right down the, the center line of the side of their chest and they velcro their arms with a little bit of hand sticking out the front and a little bit of elbow sticking out the back and they run with their arms stuck to their sides until they feel the natural response of their shoulders to their hips that that as i said earlier the contralateral oscillation of that you know so when the left hip goes forward the right the right shoulder goes forward then you get them to loosen the velcro mid run and their arms are on plane and they are able to hold that and they can feel that and then the the visual part that i spoke about in the in the first two rules of of mechanics that looks so good is is when they do that drill i videotape them from the back and when they see themselves running that way they look very good but they feel awful but they do have that imprint and saying wow that looks compact that looks economical that looks so easy to do and I even have the elite athletes literally do the velcro run mid race just to establish that connection again. They just stick their arms to their side for three or four steps and then they let them go and off they go again. So that that's an example. Uh another example is is a drill I call I do that's called dog bones which is, you know, having them stand on the spot and and powerfully swing their elbows in a running motion and what they realize is, is if they let their shoulders stay rigid all right that they lose balance it's a very difficult activity to do but if they realize that it's not a rotation but a reach motion and that the power move is backwards that uh, those hand weights play a gyroscopic role and their balance is returned and they feel the movement so much more effectively and again both of those are examples of exaggeration and when do you think is uh, the best time to do various drills uh, and also on a related note with the dynamic uh, activation movements do you prescribe them before essentially every run or is it before harder runs only and uh, yeah can you go into both of those things like when when do you do drills how often and what about the dynamic activation All right so with dynamic mobility drills and drills in general I make sure that the athlete understands that there's th- th- those things play three roles. The first role is is you trying to address a mechanical anomaly that they've got into. So you're trying to correct that and have them rehabituate what they were doing that was effective. Uh the second reason is you do it as an activation activity and sometimes it serves a mental role it's just a comfortable ritualistic thing for them to do before competition or before training just get some little bit more intentional and a little bit more focus and then the last thing that you would do let's say you're doing harness work that's pretty high load work so you could do it for muscle endurance or power purposes so it serves those three roles so it depends when you're doing it And so the the important rule when 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 it comes to doing drills is is this realization that frequency makes improvements in function so frequency creates habituation and initially a large part of the initial process the athlete should do these as fresh as possible after a while you can start introducing doing these things when they fatigued 
so that they still learn to be able to do that uh, under duress when the hierarchy of fatigue is is greater than the hierarchy of of maintaining good form. But unlike the bike where getting out of position is has a high feedback rate to the athlete and in the water getting out of position they can feel they're dragging they can feel they're struggling in the run they have these postural changes while they're running but they're not aware of it and so it's important we spoke earlier you and i about nick winkelman's book on cueing it's important to provide them with cues self-coaching cues things like speaking to themselves in the second person uh, being their own coach only looking at their form uh, you know, through a checklist when they fatigued and only addressing things that are now no longer there. So back to the dynamic mobility drills, as I said, I normally just use them extensively before um, quality workouts, but I really like the idea of doing them after the bike because people get very impaired. An example I always give people is, is when you tie your shoelaces before you go out the door for a long run, that is not a challenging activity. But for most athletes, when they come back in, to get down to the same distance to tie their shoes is not nearly as hard. And so it's not a bad idea to restore function before they get into the, into the rest of their life. And then that's exaggerated uh, off the bike. You know, so they, they spend just from a sheer time perspective, they spend so much more time in the saddle than they can spend running that the running, that the biking can tend to blanket the running motion. And I think it's the AIS that's done some good research on on pros and amateurs alike re- with this realization that some people, a small percentage of the pros, literally cannot return to their running kinematics when they get off the bike. They have different kinematics. Um, and so, you know, myself and a number of coaches are of the belief that if you do these drills enough, just like, you know, swim to run when you're running into transition – uh, you don't feel that thick upper body anymore and that bloated feeling when you get in the water and that top-heavy feeling when you get out of the water. It's the same with drills. The more you do these drills, the more the central nervous system gets uh, primed, uh, probably myelinized as well, to switch from one motion to another motion and not impact your kinetics so badly. So in other words, the, the period of time from going from one sport to another is reduced because we know everybody's kinematics are impaired when you first get off the bike. And the one thing that uh, if we go back to the start of changing running form, how do you know when to do it obviously if you're working with somebody like yourself then you have, you have a coach that can tell you okay so for you it makes sense to do this this and that change perhaps or it, perhaps you're good as you are but for people that don't have that opportunity is, is that re- the only way that to go and see somebody with real expertise in the area or is there a way to self-assess in some way what changes they might need yeah i guess i have to start with a warning be careful of the infomercial approach to to running mechanics it it is a very multifaceted approach but you can literally look at photographs of yourself and you you know you have a lot of runners who have just the slightest inkling have watched something on youtube and have watched how an elite runner runs and watched an experts analyzing how that individual runs so they might know oh okay um, simple things like I have a two beat foot strike. When my heel hits the ground, there's one sound. And then when my forefoot hits the ground, there's another sound. That's not a good thing. There's, there's something up with my transition. 
people all have phones and the ability to view themselves running in slow motion, they can see when they start to bear weight whether they their shin is leaning backwards and they're putting on the brakes. Um, so I think there, there definitely is that ability for people to start looking at that. And more and more physical therapists with the popularity of triathlon, popularity of, of distance running on the roads, there's more and more physical therapists that have that skill set and are able to look at that and just say, look, we, we can improve that. What is probably less apparent is, is what are the most economical drills to do? And you spoke about when to do them. Um, and as I said, is, is you know, th- those individuals can sacrifice five or 10 minutes of their run to, to go through these drills and they'll get a lot more out of their run. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And uh, with you mentioning that, yeah, people have smartphones and they can uh, they can take a video of themselves running. Uh, I have used a couple of apps that I find really useful for just viewing running form in uh, frame by frame. Huddle Technique and Coachesi are two that come to mind. So, do you use anything like that out of curiosity, or any recommendations on on that front, on the tech front for how to like get good uh, footage and video of your running? I do, I do. I actually like Huddle Technique myself, so that, that's what I use. So um, the simplest way that I do it is, is I just get the athlete to send me a couple of frames of them running, both fatigued or, and fresh, and at their you know projected race pace or the race pace that they want to run in. And, and it's it's so much easier to isolate the frame. It's just important to warn people, you know, that there's no fix all. And that also sometimes when people videotape stuff, the frame density is not high enough. And for them to realize that, you know, the rating is generally so much higher in running than it is in swimming, uh, e- even, even in cycling, and it's, it's difficult to, to get that exact start point. So, you know, one of the start points that I use is full extension and look at the stride angle. So the angle between the front hamstring and the, uh, uh, and the back quad but also looking at that shin angle, but knowing exactly when to look at that, you know. So how do you know that you first starting to bear weight and then just bearing in mind, are you noticing a deflection on the opposite side of the pelvis and stuff like that? So it can, but there's there's definitely so many drills that you can do that do no harm. So you know you can go, okay, I'm going to do this drill. Uh, it's not a complicated drill. Uh, even if it's not a hundred percent, you're still going to get some benefit from it. And if you are trying to implement a change, obviously this is going to probably vary hugely. But what would you say is a a common time course for implementing a change, uh, or just a range? And also, is there a case of it will be- get worse before it gets better when it comes to your running form and things like economy, even? Yeah, it's interesting when when we first spoke with the with the advent of power in running. Um, I think one of the things that that people are discovering and will discover is that the implementation of change is not as tedious as one would think, especially if you're making a gross change that was was basically hurting you before, you know, and you're now. You know, for example, driving your foot down to the ground actually decreases the intensity of your foot strike. You know, it Im- improves your, your kind of aesthetics. So, uh, in terms, it, it would be easy to test. I haven't tested it before, but what I do do is, is have people go out on their regular runs, report back how 
often they needed to return to the to the new uh, the new feel. And then we look at their overall performance. So we're we looking at heart rate or we're we looking at power and so on. And surprisingly, it is not as dramatic as you would think. And obviously, the better the athlete is, the, the harder it is for them to adapt to, to the new change. Because, you know, until only recently, uh, you know, there was a, a, you know, an understanding that, that these things don't work. But I think what is important to point out, you're not really trying to change the movement more than you're trying to change the kinesthetic set point. So you're saying your, your arm is ending up here or your hand is ending up here because of this, you know. So if you f- uh, fix that from the start, it remains like that through the whole cycle. But you're not addressing the movement. You're addressing the start point which makes it a lot easier. I think Jack Nicklaus was famous for saying, I don't worry too much about my swing. I know that if I get the club in the right place in the first place, it can only go one place and that's the right place. You know, So I try to think of it like that is how can I find an image or a moment or a, or a, you know, a, a pose, as it were, where, where the athlete feels, okay, that, that feels to me like it should feel. You know, When I do that, you say I'm in the right position. And that's how I'm going to set it up. So very often I will talk to even the elite athletes. When you arrive at a training venue and you start your warm-up run, how are you moving? Did you lean back and take a step? Or did you drop onto your driveline by by dropping your chest? Did you take big steps and try and establish stride length first? Or did you try and establish rhythm first? And then you point to examples of elite athletes that are very successful runners. You say, look, they start off with very small, quick steps. They establish rhythm first. And then as they overcome momentum and as they recruit up, they start, they start flowing, you know. So using that kind of thing. And it is more of a, of a holistic approach, you know, um, you, you focusing on one thing and you're going all the way up the chain, you know, the athlete's got a, a sore peroneal tendon and it's because on the opposite side, his arm is crossing across the front of his chest and he's got a kind of, uh, he's got a, you know, a, a kinetic chain issue going on. You fix the arm, which is not in pain and, and the ankle stabilizes out, you know, so it does require more of that kind of gestalt <laughs> approach, you know. And uh, one final thing on uh, the mechanics and running form side of things. Do you use things like strides, hill sprints, even hills in general are used quite often for uh, running form purposes? Is, do, are those things that you incorporate and uh, like to prescribe? Yeah, um, I'm very leery of using uh, something like hills where the athlete's hierarchy of what is important might interfere. So, you know, you've spoken previously on a podcast about form runs, you know, where you're running up the hill and you're trying to be as economical and as neat as possible. And the cue that I normally give the athletes that I work with is that there's a bunch of gymnastic judges sitting along the side of the hill and they're giving you style points. They not, they don't care how fast you're going, how much power you're putting out and so on. So if that's the purpose, I think that's a good idea. But if you have a situation where the athlete's trying to, you know, achieve a VO2 max workout or a lactate threshold workout on the hills, then that's different. Um, but using hills to extend an athlete's stride, to, to, uh, you know, increase their drive down, things like that, it's, it's far more effective on hills than say on a treadmill. 
And uh, with that, let's uh, move on to some more general topics uh, still around running uh, primarily. And the first thing that I'm interested in uh, hearing are your thoughts on run volume. And uh, let's keep the focus here on run volume specifically for triathletes. Yeah, you know, when it comes to long course, and I know that uh, a lot of your listeners are interested in that, when it comes to long course, I often feel that um, very few long course age group athletes can actually get to real run training. They just run, all right? But they're very scientific about the approach to the bike. They're very scientific about the approach to the swim. And then the run is kind of like an afterthought because because the nature of the beast is is they just don't have the capability or the time to actually train that up as well and then i always go from the first principle is is that you know most of them will achieve success rates on the bike beyond what they should be doing in the race so i have a simple little rule of thumb that i say if you're putting out optimal power on the bike you should be able to continue putting that power out for the duration that you expect to run. In, in, and otherwise, the blame keeps repeatedly being placed on the runability when it's nothing to do with the runability. They're either overbiked or they're not strong enough on the bike or not conditioned enough on the bike to sustain the output that they had. So, you know, if I had a, if I had a buck for every guy who predicted his swim time perfectly and his bike time perfectly and was 20 minutes off on his marathon time, you know, I'd be a wealthy man. So I do think that there's not enough simulation work done. I literally think that, you know, anybody that's, you know, doing Ironman in the 12 plus range would probably be better off doing really challenging hikes rather than long runs. And without a question of doubt that, uh, you know, being able to sustain a, a, a manageable pace, both in terms of their, their um, you know, nutritional and metabolic capabilities, that the way to go is to, you know, do, do the run-walk methodology. It's just so much easier to pace. It's so much easier to sustain a pace that you're capable of. Is that something that you would uh, advise even for those that are running the Ironman marathon in, let's say close coming close to three hours? It's it's a very good question and it and some part of that question is answered by the ego of the individual. But basically the simple rule of thumb is is if you could go faster walk running, well then walk run, you know? And then and, and that's the ego conversation. I remember working for a long time with Gordo Byrne and twice he used the run walk method to run 115 off the bike in, you know, in a half Ironman. So, um, it's definitely doable, but it's a question of performance. What works for you? If you're a bigger individual that can sustain a high pace quite comfortably and your stride variability at a slightly higher pace is comfortable for you and you can do that 9-1 or you can do that 6-1 or something like that and your overall result and your ability to sustain that over the course of the marathon or the half marathon is greater because of that then do that but if you're a, a smaller individual that is highly mechanically efficient uh, you would just be losing time you might as well just run the whole way so I'm going to come back to the question about running volume a bit and to make sure that we, we get it clear. So were you saying that do you think that most runners are not running enough, that their volume is insufficient? No, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm saying that it's better to get to the start line 
than it is to attempt to do the kind of run training that is high risk and is going to have you injured, you know. So in other words, for uh, an Ironman athlete to try and go out and do, uh, you know, 16 or 18 kilometer, you know, tempo run or something like that. I'm saying that, you know, sure, you need to go out there and run at the race pace that you intend to run at off the bike under good conditions, but fractionalize the hell out of it, you know, so that you are able to sustain that. So, you know, run volume is such an individualized conversation. You know, there's, there's, you know, just to, to generalize, you know, the bigger guys are so much better off doing a lot of power and a lot of strength work that has them able to stay on their legs with the output that they have. And, you know, the smaller athletes that can metabolize that amount of running and not impact the quality running that they, uh, you know, the quality training on the bike or in the water or in the run that they need, you know, can do a little bit more volume. But to have the volume match up to the race distance is a myth, you know, because you've got a 119 pound male running 140 kilometers a week. All right. And it feels to that individual from a physiological cost benefit and a neuromuscular cost benefit, like he's running, you know, 50 kilometers a week. Whereas, you know, the 100 or the 80 or the 75 kilogram guy, you know, he's not going to get to that mileage anyway. And that mileage is going to be slowly but surely just break him down. It's not going to, it's not going to serve the purposes you need. So it's highly individualized. I remember when I first started with triathlon, looking at these numbers saying, the average ITU athlete runs 125 kilometers a week if it's a male and, you know, 110 kilometers a week if it's a female. But it's just a complete myth, you know. Some athletes can run, you know, some of the, some of the women can run, you know, around about 33 uh, minutes off the bike on 30 kilometers a week, you know, because they took care of the bike and their best running is available. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. So what would you say is the range of uh, run volume that your elite uh, ITU athletes are are doing now from the low end of things to the high end of things? You know, in the, in those years with Gwen, she was getting away with very, very little, you know, um, very little mileage, you know, somewhere around about 50 kilometers a week. And I very seldom see uh, an elite athlete doing more consistently over a, over a period of, you know, six plus weeks, doing more than 60 miles or 100K a week. You know, the sweet spot of a say, if there is such a thing as a sweet spot, would probably be in the, you know, 55 to maybe 80 kilometers a week on some periods of time, depending on, you know, what, what phase they are in and what they're working on. Perfect. And uh, let's discuss intensity and uh, quality runs, if you want to call them that. Um, how do you incorporate them in training? What do you think is the right amount? When do you think they should be done? And what type of intensity do you have a preference for, if any? I would probably say my initial thought would be do the least amount of work to meet the demands of competition. Um, so we were speaking earlier about this concept of, of placing an athlete on a continuum from a high octane athlete to a diesel athlete. Uh, and that to me sometimes impacts the taper as well. So you're looking at an athlete that's more of a diesel 
they lose form if they if they change their training pattern or they cut back too dramatically. Um, but from my perspective, where I sit in terms of the the coach athlete relationship, I'm I'm you know I'm the advisor to the coach. So the things that I'm looking at are are the neuromuscular connection, the the coupling to the the velocity demands of the race. So if if this athlete on the left hand side can achieve uh, the demands of competition and only do tempo type running, uh, then I would say, well, why would you go any faster than that? Um, and then, you know, s- some of the other athletes might need a, a, a little bit more of the threshold. And sometimes I feel that, uh, you know, you always have to bear in mind that part of that is, is also psychemotional, that they need that amount of intensity. So some athletes might need eight 400s for them to believe they can run X time for 5K off the bike. And other athletes feel, no, they need six times a mile, you know, and they, and they both end up at the same, same position. But I like to work, you know, when I'm viewing it from a distance and I'm trying to give the coach, you know, a little bit of uh, a different perspective on, on, on what the coach is doing, I like to view it as, as seven areas of work, you know. And so I've got, you know, the – the first two intensity factors, and I kind of like to almost drop out the second intensity factor. If the athlete is getting what they need through going super easy, you know, um, then then that's fine because that's a great place for them to learn gait and to learn mechanical e- economics as well. Uh, and then looking at tempo and and uh, as the poor man's LT, if we can get away with tempo, then then I think that's the way to go. Um, uh, if you look at it classically, you know, the threshold is the money intensity to go at. And if you want to raise that up a little bit, you know, just throwing in some VO2 max towards the end of that phase, but importantly, coming back to the LT again. But then I'm, I'm also from my middle distance background. I'm fascinated by the, the super VO2 max stuff, you know, the, the, uh, um, the speed endurance stuff, the 30 second work with the maximum recovery. I like that stuff a lot. I like to assess strides. To look at the athlete's stride capacity, um, uh, you know, so you know, I don't have uh, a thought that there's any kind of zones other than maybe tempo. Everything else is is governed by the the purpose of the workout. And then with triathletes, you can get so much more eclectic. You can do a little bit of each one. Um, you know, sometimes within the same workout, you know, you can do, uh, who was it, uh, Pat Clarcy, you know, um, the Australian coach had what he called complex training and just do little bits of everything all the time. So for the elite athletes, how, how many days per week might they be running and how many of, uh, how many days per week might they be doing, uh, some more intense running? So tempo or above? There are definitely no single answer to that one. Very, very different. So it's, it's sometimes, you know, we have a number of athletes that come from running backgrounds and, <coughs> excuse me, and we find it important for these athletes, even the morning of the race to do a swim workout. Now the opposite is true too. If you're not a natural runner, you want quite a lot of frequency. You want to be able to sustain your rhythm and find your rhythm very easily. So they would run, you know, they, they, they might be running nine times a week or eight times a week, you know. Um, but then, you know, probably not, not less than four or five times a week. But again, it's very athlete dependent. And in, in terms of that quality work as well, 
you know, I go from the standpoint is, is uh, as we spoke about, I'd rather have an athlete be undercooked and get to the start line than to be even slightly overcooked and, and, and be over the top. Um, so those quality workouts would all depend on the context, especially of the bike. You know, because if you look at it from an energy system perspective, a lot of times you can get away with running just returning to the, the neuromuscular establishment of the velocity. And how do you prescribe run uh, workouts? Do you prefer or do you work with a combination of pace, heart rate, power, RPE? Can you uh, explain that process? Yeah, I would have to go back to what I do currently with runners and what I used to do with runners, you know, when we were working on running a specific time or, or winning a specific championship, things like that. Because, you know, I have not had a lot of experience prescribing that directly to triathletes. I would speak to the coach and might, he might get an idea. She might feel, oh, okay, that's a good idea. And, and I could incorporate that in, in a certain manner. Um, but, uh, f from my, my own perspective, rephrase that for me. So I can tell you from a runner's perspective. Do, a do you prefer to prescribe workouts? Like if you're writing a training plan for a runner that you coach or even for yourself to work on, uh, on heart rate or pace or oh. power or RPE or a combination. Got you, got you. The old man in me spaced that. So again, it's what's available. What is the athlete used to? Um, I am a big fan of power at the moment. So I, I really like what seems to be possible from power. There's obviously a couple of little things to be worked out. Um, but I, I really like the fact that it's closer to a fixed number, uh, despite surface, despite conditions, despite, uh, you know, the athlete's mental, emotional status. So I like power a lot. I have no problem working with heart rate, but I do feel that, that you know, that its limits, limitations are at the bottom end, that it can serve as a ceiling, but always bearing in, in mind the athlete's training status. Uh, you know, and then it's, it's good feedback as to whether the coach or myself as the coach has got the workout right. But I don't really like the idea of guiding a workout other than, as I said earlier, maybe tempo, but I don't like the idea of guiding, uh, workouts with heart rate, you know, from VO2 max all the way down to the bottom. And uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about sports psychology, which is uh, another area that uh, that you've worked in for a long time. And uh, let's start with what do you think are the most important things that athletes can and should do to make sure that they're on top of their mental game? Yeah, mindfulness. You know, we spoke about it. So I think uh, each athlete has a style of 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 achieving a performance. Um, the whole concept of positive thinking is, you know, of late being turned on its head because we know a lot of these great athletes are very, very negative thinkers and they go out and they perform at very, very high levels. But I think in a increased awareness of what is distracting you and what is keeping you away from your intentional focus and what to do with that, you know, just moving towards the old saw of you, you are not your thoughts uh, and paying, paying attention which thoughts you should be listening to and which thoughts you should not be listening to. So, you know, d different styles, you know, some athletes uh, are really good at visualizing. Some athletes, you know, have worked well on, on, on an sort of audible mindset. 
Um, but I think just increasing an understanding of you are already performing. Um, what you are doing uh, might be something you think is holding you back. Let's look at that. You know, I've had situations where an athlete's parents would come to me or an athlete's friends would come to me and saying, you know, you really got to help this athlete. They get really nervous. They're bouncing off the walls before races. They, they are impossible to control, et cetera, et cetera. But the athlete's performing really, really well. And so, you know, when the athlete comes to me with that, I say to him, look, it's not your problem. It's their problem. Your process is working just fine because you're performing. So I think that just moving away from the fact that any kind of mental skills work is to enhance performance, is not to fix anything. And for, you know, the average coach to realize that their job is not that of psychologist, their job is that of, of motivator, of, you know, being, being the logical influence. And then I think part of this drive with mindfulness is for the athlete to continually increase their ability to be objective about their process, to observe themselves under pressure and give themselves uh, that realization that they are in control of the situation or they are in control of what they can control. So you said that uh, there is any um, intervention that you do on uh, the sports psychology side is not to to fix anything, it's to enhance performance. That being said, are there any things that uh, you see that might hold athletes back in in terms of their performance on the mental side of things, like any common uh, common traps that athletes fall into with their psychology and their mental state? Yeah, I think it's, it's, I, I, I've, I've alluded to it, but I think it's cognizance or no, not cognizance is giving in to the, their level of thinking, you know? So, you know, to make a terrible generalization, I think some male age group athletes source the information which tells them what they're capable of incorrectly. They filter it through ego. And so they set themselves up for failure that way. Uh, and sometimes the opposite is true as well. Individuals want to take pressure off themselves, so they set themselves up for a much lower level of performance than they're capable of. But if you go from the general understanding that the main source of, of anxiety in a healthy athlete is their fear of not achieving a performance that they believe they are capable of. I think that that's the main source of anxiety. So if they look at that, then the thing they need to look at is, is how did they create this expectation? Where does it come from? You know, so if they are referring to numbers and, uh, and workouts that they have done that have no relevance to the performance and they're gaining their, you know, their, their expectations from that, then they're setting themselves up to fail as well. So those four steps with internal dialogue, what are you thinking? Is it helping you? If it's not helping you, what would be a better process in terms of your your, intern, your intentional focus? And then lastly, of course, habituate it so that when the when the storm winds of, of competition blow, that, that those couple of sheets that you've recently written don't get blown off the top of the pile and you get the old crap back. How important do you think motivation is? And uh, what do you do? Because motivation will vain at some point not necessarily continuously but you will have days when you are less motivated uh, how do you make sure that you still do the work required on those days do you i 
I think find this an interesting topic with uh, the sort of balance between motivation and setting up routines and habits that can can pull the load for when motivation isn't really there. So what's your thoughts on that? You know, I have to admit to being less proficient at that process. I had an early mentor coach say to me, you can activate athletes, you can't motivate them. Motivation is up to them. But when you work with athletes that I'm privileged to work with at the level that they work at, if there is any kind of doubt about what it is they want to achieve and what it takes, you know, they, we have bigger problems, you know. But for an athlete that, um, you know, is an age group athlete and, you know, sometimes motivation wanes, you know, the obvious thing is to to go back to you know, what is the long-term desire? You know, as endurance athletes, all of us are, are a sick bunch of puppies, right? We, we, we interdelay gratification. And so you just need to re, realign with, with that gratification. And those, those athletes come to that point where, you know, they're no longer willing to do that. That's sometimes the, the turning point. So I, you know, I remember having a conversation back with a triathlon friend of mine. We were doing that, and he said, "How do you so comfortably just, no matter what kind of shape you're in, you're always running, you know, under 40 minutes for 10k off the bike? How do you, how do you do that?" And I go, "Well, I know what my capability is, and I'm very happy that with the amount of training I'm able to do on top of my coaching and everything else, that I can do that." And I also know that if I employ a physiotherapist and I train twice as hard and I do all this sort of stuff, I'm not going to go a hell of a lot faster. And that amount that I do go faster is not going to make me a pro anyway. So, you know, so I think achieving that, that balance. And then I think with, you know, growing up in South Africa where the Comrades Marathon is the thing, you know, you can be a sub four minute miler, but if you haven't run the Comrades Marathon, you're not really a runner, you know? So growing up with that mindset that the training plays some part of how I define myself and I enjoy that process, uh, you know, and then the races normally come out of that. So I think the establishment of attitude and having somebody in your life who can make you aware of, listen, you're going at it too hard from a f intensity of focus standpoint, you're just not going to get there. You know, you're just going to lose the desire to do that. You know, just have somebody who is far enough removed from the conversation that they can continually just ground you in the reality. Listen, you're a dad, you've got two kids, you know, you, you, you can't be out there training 30 hours a week, you know, you... <laughs> Josiah Tungwani, who won the the marathon in the Olympics, we were at an altitude training camp in uh, in Sabi, and uh, they just done a 30k run, at, you know, kind of like a tempo effort. And I put the bike down at the side of the building, and my legs were pretty wobbly from riding a mountain bike up at altitude over those hills. And I went inside, grabbed my running shoes, came back out, and Josiah said to me, well, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm just going to go for a run." And he said, "Bobby, how fast do you run for 10k?" And I said, oh, "About 34 minutes." And he said. You know what, Bobby, how long have you been running? I said, I've been running since 1968. He says, you can stop now. You're not going to get good. You know, so, so that kind of mentality, you know, just lends perspective to what you're doing, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, we could go very deep on that. But I, I think like some important points that you touched on there is like having an, a, like creating an identity that is aligned with your goals and your life. That's, uh, that's a really good starting point at, at least for, for how to, how to achieve long-term success without sacrificing other parts of your life 
Um, a final couple of questions. Do you see anything out there, whether it's training, equipment, uh, recovery, nutrition, or in, in the academic field, that you think is overhyped or a fad? You know, it's a good question, and I'm I'm not the kind of guy that that goes out and and you know poo poo stuff. But uh, you know, time time always is a is a great leveler. But uh, I do find that from a mental perspective, people become too dependent on extrinsic devices. And we spoke earlier about RPE, and I didn't answer about RPE specifically. But I feel that people incorrectly recalibrate their RPE based on their devices. And so I think that some part of running, you know, leaving the watch at home, Uh, or taping the watch over so your coach can get the data, but you don't know what you're doing while you're doing it. Um, and, and really learning to, to viscerally experience your training and get back in touch with what that takes to be able to get the best out of yourself. So, uh, you know, I think the, the whole concept of, of doing your training so that you can put it on Strava as a primary objective, you know, or doing is is maybe not as effective for you in the long term. You know, I think you need to be a bit of a Zen master. You need to be a little bit engrossed in your own process. Uh, and another thing that I don't like is normalized data from elite athletes, because I think that puts age groupers off. It gives them, you know, it dings their self-worth so badly, you know, um, you know, What you're trying to do through your training is maybe improve your fun functional threshold power and then you will perform better. But being all sheepish about it because your functional threshold power is, you know, 100 watts less than the next guy's is not useful, you know, is not useful. So I think that uh, this, ex this over-reliance on extrinsic things might be uh, a peeve of mine. And uh, overall, whether it's running or just more generally in endurance training, do you think what are some of the most common mistakes that you would advise athletes not to make that you see them making? In triathlon, it's quite simple. They run too hard when they run because they feel they're running less. Okay, I've now come from running to triathlon, and so I can't run as much as I used to run. So when I do run, I'm going to run a little harder. You know, I think that, that, that that's a common mistake. Uh, I think another common mistake is expecting your progression rates uh, on the run to match your progression rates on the bike. You know, expecting your run to get better that, that as quickly as, it, as it's possible to get better on the bike. And uh, final question before the rapid fire questions. Do you have some final piece of advice for age group triathletes? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Make it more personal. Make it more intensely personal. You know, I think that we, we also spoke earlier about the whole concept of, uh, of FOMO, you know. Um, race, race a couple of local races or a bunch of local races and, and get into those year after year Uh, rather than always putting all of your effort and all your eggs into, you know, a, desti a destination race that, that's going to be a crapshoot at best anyway to get the best out of you. So become, I think when I first came to the, to the US, one of the things that I realized was there was a lot of people that pulled their running shoes out of the cupboard and trained for six weeks for one event every year. Um, and you know, the, I don't think that that's as satisfying as being a lifestyle 
athlete, you know, you're being a lifetime runner or whatever the, the case might be. So I think that that would be, be my advice is, is that even if you're starting at 40 or 50 or, or 60, you know, see it as something that will keep giving back to you if, if you play sensibly. All right, great. And uh, finally, for the rapid fire questions, which are just one sentence answers. So this is a big challenge, uh, but I'm sure you'll be up for it. The first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or running or endurance sports? Yeah. That triathlon show is not bad. That's not bad at all. <laughs> I, I actually enjoy it. Um, I'm currently, I, I'm more a current kind of books person. So I'm currently reading a book, uh, it's a slightly older book, it's called What Makes Olga Run, about super seniors in, in, in sports. And I just find it's a, a rich source. So I'm enjoying that at the moment. And what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I think the realization every single day that the athletes are my teachers. They, they, I get far more bang for my buck from them than I think they get from me. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Mm, that, that, that parting and being out with, with the gang... Uh, didn't get me as far as I thought I could have got in sport. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Bobby. This has been a really fun uh, fun talk and uh, I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So we wish you all the best with the upcoming season and uh, all the way up to Tokyo. Thanks so much, Michael. I hope that you enjoyed that interview and uh, I just want to say that uh, the opportunity to do these kinds of live interviews with uh, the absolute best of the best uh, in coaching uh, is uh, absolutely fantastic. Before this, The week before this one you heard John O'Hall and the week before that it was Adil Tweiten of the Norwegian uh, triathlon team. So it's been fantastic to be able to meet these people over the last few weeks and I also think that it really helps me conduct better interviews when there's more context i've already met the person i've been uh, looking at what they're doing in training with their athletes we've been discussing talking shop before actually doing the interview it just helps you go down some discussion trails that you might not have seen otherwise so hopefully uh, these kinds of coaches uh, and their squads keep choosing portugal as a training camp destination in the future so we can get more of these uh, i've absolutely absolutely loved the opportunity to to get to do these interviews and uh, thank you again to to all the coaches mentioned for for having me uh, spend some time with them you can find the show notes as usual for this episode on that triathlonshow.com and I'll link to quite a number of related episodes on running form there. And they will also be linked to in the podcast episode description in your podcast app. So if you want to learn more about running form, we've had a few of those and uh, there's more to dig into. It's been a while since I've asked, so I'll take the opportunity now to do so. If you enjoy the podcast and are a long-time listener, uh, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. You can check out scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate to actually to get instructions for how to rate the podcast if you don't know quite how to do it. And uh, that really helps the podcast. It goes a long way to find helping new people find it, which uh, at the end of the day is what makes it uh, a worthwhile endeavor to spend the time that uh, that I do on producing the podcast. 
If you're interested in training plans, coaching, or customized plans, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com, which is uh, newly updated, a fresh look and feel to it. So I hope that you enjoy that. I think it's a big improvement on what it looked like before. And hopefully it's not just visually, but also content-wise and information-wise, you'll find what you're looking for much easier now than before. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka. Check out their new Max Buoyancy wetsuit, the Maverick MX, and uh, get 20% off your order, whether it's the new Maverick MX or anything else that you might be interested in, by getting a promo code on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving travel.